Cyber Talk Radio. From the dark web to your radio dial, brought to you on 1200 WOAI. Thank you for joining us for the inaugural episode of Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I started off as a hands-on practitioner, studying computer programming in college, becoming a security analyst, and learning to think like the bad guys. I'm going to take those years of experience and help you learn to defend yourself and your business on the air with us. So CyberTalk Radio, you ask. What is it? Why are we talking about it? And why does it matter to me? So every business uses the internet today. Every consumer uses the internet. You may be listening to us on analog AM radio, or you may be listening to us streaming live over iHeartRadio. The digital world is everywhere around us, and the attackers are on there trying to make your life miserable. This week, after the break, we're going to be talking machine learning with Charlie Rentschler. He's a true expert that stays on top of the Internet's leading trends. One of these today is machine learning, and it has real-world powerful implications for both good and potentially evil. Good evening, everybody. This is Brett Pyatt here with Cyber Talk Radio. Tonight we have Charlie Rentschler in the studio with us, and we're going to talk about machine learning. Hey, Brett. Good to see you again. Good to see you, Charlie. And uh, for the audience here, machine learning, what does that mean to me? And pretend I'm eight years old. Sure. Or maybe pretend I'm six because I might not even be as smart as an eight-year-old. <laughs> Got it. Well, uh, first and foremost, thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. Um, I I think that machine learning is one of the great uh, topics of technology these days because whether you know what it is or not, it's actually everywhere. Um, Put very briefly, machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, are generally concepts that people talk about synonymously. So in the technology world, you'll hear machine learning more often than you'll hear artificial intelligence. But Essentially, the concept is really quite simple. It's having the ability to train a computer to do something that it then learns so that down the road it can infer what to do when faced with a very specific task. So uh, if I had an example of machine learning that folks may have seen out there, um, Jeopardy, there was Watson on Jeopardy. Is that machine learning? Is that just a giant computer database? Like, What's Watson? So exactly right. Watson is probably one of the most salient examples of machine learning that exists in the world today. The, the engineers at IBM uh, spent hundreds or thousands of hours tra- training essentially that computer model uh, to know how to respond to questions. So when you, when you break down what Watson is, it's a couple of different things. It's being able to speak to a computer and have that computer understand not only the words but the question that you pose to it. And then it has the ability to understand or infer uh, what you really meant by that question. And then it can query a database in the background to try to come up with the answer to that. So it's a really smart version of Siri. It's exactly. Siri is another great example of machine learning that that exists in the marketplace, for sure. Very, very interesting. Okay. And then for some more complicated machine learning. So playing Jeopardy is kind of complicated, but it's trivia. And we can even do that at the bar after a few drinks. But... There's this other um, machine learning thing that folks may have seen recently that the most complicated 
um, board game out there, Go. Right. Um, and there was a team from Google called AlphaGo. They, they built a robot to play Go, um, a machine learning robot um, that went and, and participated in a tournament this last year. It's it, Go is meant to be, uh, and, I, and I'm by no means an expert on Go myself, but it's meant to be one of the most complicated games one can play. So the fact that a computer learned how to play this game with all sorts of nuance and idiosyncrasy that, that it was able to not only learn how to play it, but to, how to beat some of the world's best players was really impressive. And uh, another indication that the whole science of machine learning is getting better and better and better and more sophisticated. And this goes well beyond just having the ability to uh, understand spoken language, though that is a really compelling uh, facet of machine learning, for sure. Uh, you can imagine that there are all sorts of applications for something like that, uh, translating English into Mandarin Chinese, those kinds of things. But where things get really interesting, uh, from my perspective, is when you think about machine learning in terms of its ability to recognize things, visual clues. Uh, so as an example, uh, you can train a machine learning module to understand human emotion through facial expressions. So what I mean by that is, is that you take the computer model and you, you introduce it to tens of thousands of different examples of images of people's faces that represent happiness or anxiety or sadness or anger. And you essentially go to the computer and you say, this is what a happy face looks like. This is what another happy face looks like. This is what yet another happy face looks like. And, and over time, and you need tens of thousands of different examples of these things, whether you're talking about uh, the visual piece that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm describing right now, or any of these other repetitive tasks, you need to be able to do this hundreds of thousands or even millions of times. And then you set aside a sample set and you, you test it. So you say, okay, now that we've trained you to be able to recognize what a human being's happy face looks like, explain to me what, what, what emotion this person is right here. And what's, what, what's really interesting about this, Brett, is that even though this computer has never seen your face before, it can more reliably predict what your emotion is, more reliably even than another human being can. And this is, this is a really, really powerful concept when you think about all of the implications. So this is, as you look at the facial recognition, as I think about how you train the machine there, this would be the same way that I would train one of my kids to learn the alphabet, and I'm showing them flashcards, and they have uh, a Times New Roman font on one flashcard, and then it's got a Comic Sans on the next flashcard, then it's got a, a Gothic font on the third flashcard, and I haven't shown the the child yet the gothic font but it realizes that that's still the letter a because it looks kind of like the one did in the other fonts is that, that what you're saying like that, the, the machine's doing exactly right because you've trained it to recognize these things it's now sophisticated enough where it can make certain inferences where it thinks to itself hmm this must be the letter c in spite of the fact that it's to your example written in old english script or font uh not in the times new roman font uh, or something whatever it was that you were that, that you trained it in so as you're going through now with these machine learning, we've talked about a, a bunch of examples where the teams of people are training these uh, machine learning systems to do a very specific task. Play trivia, do Jeopardy, play Go, uh, recognize facial recognition or images. Are there multi-purpose machine learning or is like are we teaching the machines to, to be people right now? Where are we at in this evolution of, of the teaching the machines to learn? Well, it, it's really one of the fundamental questions, I think, in this whole 
ecosystem of questions around machine learning. You know, this is a very polarizing concept because there are people that, that harken back to the Terminator movies and, and Skynet and these thoughts that we're building robots and machines that will eventually tire of the human race and see us as being uh, fallible as being, you know, something that should potentially be uh, euthanized and sort of moved aside. I, me personally, I, I don't believe in a version of the future that involves any of that. But I certainly understand why people get uh, very nervous about the implications of technologies like this proliferating. But right now we have to understand where machine learning is in its evolutionary uh, life cycle. And, and, and it's a bit like describing a human being. Uh, and uh, maybe a very talented human being, but a, a human being that starts out being a baby. And, um, and that's exactly where machine learning is right now. So machine learning algorithms are getting really good at recognizing patterns and anomalies in things, whether that's a data set or a series of pictures, uh, those kinds of things. But what's gonna be really interesting is when we can put all of these things together, and by the way, this is happening uh, left and right in corporate America and within academia and within government realms and circles. Uh, but bringing all of these things together is going to be incredibly powerful, but we're just on the very leading edge right now. And that's why uh, all of these thoughts of uh, Terminator-like uh, cyborgs taking over the world uh, is not only far-fetched, but it, it's the kind of thing that's going to take a really, really long time to come down the path. Uh, so. You know, you, you will never be able to replace what human beings fundamentally bring to the equation, and that is uh, an ability to relate to one another, an ability to dream, uh, to think really abstractly about things, to be uh, incredibly compassionate. And it doesn't matter how many labeled data sets we've, we put in front of these computers. Those are things that, in my humble estimation, we'll never be able to fully synthesize. So the, the Ex Machina movie is is way out in the future. It's not happening next week. Exactly right. It's, it's, it's way out in the future, but we're already seeing uh, the fruits of uh, some of these early machine learning advances. I mean, you think about uh, search engines and, uh, and email platforms. I mean, there isn't a search engine or an email platform out there that doesn't in some way, shape, or form riff off of machine learning. Even advertising these days. And machine learning algorithms are, are what ultimately is, are, are behind the technologies that go and gather up the things that these companies think that you're probably going to be interested in. Yeah. And it puts those together and, and, and it kind of bundles them into uh, you know, tangible insights that I think make the world a much better place. Yeah, and then you, you have humans who create noise inside these data sets so like the netflix recommendation algorithm some folks say i think that that's based on a machine learning but then like in my house i have my own netflix user sometimes my kids don't log out so netflix recommends pokemon and digimon and all sorts of other kid shows to me and if netflix is then trying to use what i watch on tv as and they assume that's all brett and they map that back to me now you've got this noise inside of the data and the machine's going to be a little confused because it doesn't know that at 3.30 in the afternoon after school, Brett's not at home watching Pokemon. Well, exactly right. And there, there are countless examples of that. I mean, we, we've got some nicknames in our family that, uh, you know, where we refer to our little kids as kittens and cats and this kind of thing. And, you know, of course, uh, my Google phone and, and other things that can actually hear my voice assume that I'm just absolutely head over heels into cats and offer me cat fancy uh, magazine subscriptions and these kinds of things all the time. Clearly, they've gotten that piece of it wrong, but it is a step in the right direction. 
uh, because no longer do advertisers have to do the peanut butter smear approach of just throwing something out there and hoping that some percentage of the listening public uh, will respond to that. Uh, it's much, much more targeted. Uh, but, but these things go well, way beyond that as well. I mean, when you think about machine learning, uh, a self-driving car is essentially uh, one of the great examples of, of a machine learning model uh, being put into place. The reason why they haven't hit the market yet is because there are so many millions of different scenarios that you have to teach that computer. So this is why when you go out to uh, places like uh, Mountain View and other spots in California, you'll see these self-driving cars driving around. What they're doing is they're training themselves. They're, they're, and it's going to take tens of millions of, of hours of training before a self-driving car really has it and knows the difference between uh, a semi-truck that's painted light blue and, and, and the blue sky uh, and can differentiate between the two and can make that right inference. So when you're talking about things like advertising, it's okay when uh, you get it slightly wrong and you're pitching me Cat Fancy Magazine. It's not okay when that machine learning algorithm is essentially driving you and your family uh, 75 miles an hour down the highway. So we've talked about um, all of these at a conceptual level at this point. So what if we drill a little bit into the actual what's going on behind the scenes with the machine learning? So there's uh, some open source projects out there. Uh, one of them that's uh, popular right now, gaining some uh, real traction, is a project called TensorFlow. Right. Um, and that project allows you, if you can code in Python, to feed a bunch of data into your system and then you can train it. So if I was a, a software developer and I understood Python and how to download and get a package going, um, from there with TensorFlow, are there, is it just one sort of thing? Do I just tell it image or are there different types of machine learning algorithms? <clears throat> there are different types of machine learning algorithms and, and TensorFlow really is an open source framework that you could leverage to accommodate all manner of different types of approaches. And uh, TensorFlow is a really cool one that Google uh, open sourced, I, I think, uh, less than a year and a half ago now. Uh, that's gaining a tremendous amount of momentum. Now, there are other approaches that you can take, but one of the key differences between this whole concept of being a software developer and being really proficient where machine learning is concerned is that you can't just typically take a bunch of classes like you could in, say, Python or PHP or Go or Ruby or something like that and be proficient. Typically, because of all the math that has to come into what it is that we're talking about, uh, you, you, people need to have really deep mathematical backgrounds in order to accommodate the types of graph databases and the other really sophisticated things on the back end that ultimately power all of these approaches. So, so what you're saying is I'm not going to be able to go down to Barnes & Noble and pick up a machine learning for dummies anytime soon and actually be able to do something useful with it. Well, you know, so increasingly a lot of this work is being done so that uh, some of these things can be leveraged uh, from previous projects and uh, these open source communities are doing a, a really good job of, of packaging up these component pieces such that you can take them and just sort of plug them in. But the fundamentals, I mean if for example you have a drone and you want to train the drone to be able to uh, recognize rooftops and boundary lines, maybe you're doing something that's going to um, help a state or a local agency with say tax records for property taxes and you want something programmatic, non-human based that you could employ 
such that you could tell the difference between somebody's roof line this year versus last year to try to make some determinations on uh, maybe how old that person's roof is or whether they've added something to their house, something along these lines. The, you, you can train these models only so far. What, what then happens is you use math to fill in the rest of the gaps. And there are always going to be gaps, whether they're large or whether they are small, they're always going to be there and you're going to have to use some really sophisticated mathematical techniques to kind of smooth out the edges and make sure that everything looks the right way. So, so that's one of the key differences here. We're not, we're not just talking about uh, you know, agile software development here. We're really talking about solving uh, big time real world issues with a combination of really sophisticated technology, but also math at the end of the day. So it's, it's also, I guess, yeah, you're saying with the math there is that the machine should get smart enough to know that if I, I watch Chef's Table and other cooking shows that I might also not watch Pokemon it might filter that out and assume that someone else is using my ID at that point in time. Exactly right. If there's a tree that's grown up that now is leafing out, that's, that's growing over one of the roof lines, it's the math that, that comes in and says, okay, I'm going to assume that, that this is actually a tree that's overgrowing the roof line. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and, and draw this as a straight line because I feel like I've seen this movie before uh, and, and this is the, the natural conclusion. Now, are these things perfect? Absolutely not, but it's, a, it's, it's an enormous step in the right direction for a lot of different kinds of, uh, of companies and organizations looking to do things more cost effectively. So, and then we've talked about some public examples of machine learning, but as you, you go back into industry today, uh, how widespread is machine learning? Are people, as you said, these take a, quite a bit of data. Like, so where are most enterprises that people interact with, most companies people interact with on this machine learning curve? I, I think people would be really surprised to know how many different types of organizations are really already coalescing around these types of technologies. Uh, and the reason is because uh, the, this type of an approach can have a massive impact on a company's balance sheet. So, you know, from a marketing perspective, we've talked now several times about uh, the different ways that people try to really uh, cue in on who you are, and they're trying to micro-segment who you are and to market to you that way. That's going to have potentially a quantifiable impact on the top line of your organization for sure. But think about it a different way as well. If there are ways to pull human capital, and this is where people begin to get a little bit freaked out about the implications here because, as I think we'll talk about in a little while, there are widespread social implications here for what it is that's being worked on. But if, for example, you didn't have to have uh, an insurance actuary uh, to go climb up on 500 sets of ladders to inspect uh, the hail damage that had just occurred across a very wide swath of a particular geography, if you, if you could instead do that with a combination of drones and machine learning, imagine the cost savings that you could deliver to the bottom line of your organization. And as a consumer, instead of waiting eight months for a claims adjuster, it potentially uh, could happen in a day and I could get my check next week so I can get my new roof and get back on with my life. Maybe the whole thing is automated in that way. Maybe that organization passes a bunch of that savings on to you. Maybe the price of something goes down because of it. Uh, so setting aside for the moment some of the social implications of what it is that we're talking about here, I think most people would agree that this is making uh, organizations uh, more agile. I think it's getting them closer together, together with their customers. And I think it's short-circuiting a ton of cost, uh, all of which is good for the economy and for, for you, the, the, the consumer, at the end of the day, in my opinion.
So with machine learning, we're starting to see it hit our everyday lives, whether it's simple things or things that feel simple like Siri or maybe a little bit more complicated like the insurance um, or self-driving car, self-driving cars. My my Nest home thermostat it just told me a little while ago it's energy rush hour and it's going to save me money by right. not spiking my thermostat during that hour. Today. Exactly right. And with this, we're starting to see it across these are all pretty big companies that we've been talking about so if, a, if I'm a small business owner uh, what can I do from that perspective to start using machine learning in my business well so that's a great question because there are a bunch of people out there that don't have legions of uh, you know math majors or math PhDs in fact so many of the people that I meet in this space have not one but two PhDs uh, which is an indication of just how sophisticated the back-end modeling uh, is in, in this world. But mercifully, there, there are all manner of different services that you can take advantage of as a small business owner that don't require you to actually spin up your own uh, machine learning algorithm or model. Uh, there are plenty of companies, uh, people like Google and others, that have uh, APIs for you know, speech translation or uh, visual APIs to be able to recognize certain things that you can tap into, um, you know, essentially just by folding that technology in with whatever stack it is that you're running today. So you don't have to go uh, hire up all those uh, PhD math people that uh, also know something about uh, uh, graph databases and, and these types of models. So that's the exciting part. And with small business and so sh is there information that I should be saving or collecting right now maybe if I don't know that I'm ready for machine learning or how to do machine learning I need data though or information in order to make it useful to for right. training and teaching exactly right and that's uh, you know that's why we uh, w while we've seen so much uh, m well so more and more data being captured by companies and organizations large and small uh, it's because, in my humble estimation, people know that while I might not necessarily have a screaming use case for this today, uh, down the road when things, when these computers get even more powerful, we can crunch even more of these numbers, maybe we're leveraging machine learning in a way that we're not today, uh, th those things will absolutely become very much germane. So, so people are, are grabbing uh, more and more data and they're, they're saving it for longer and longer, even if they aren't necessarily leveraging it for things today. They're just that much more forward-thinking. So out there, we have these new troves of data being collected. We have these machines that are being trained, um, in many cases, with accurate information. Um, after our break here, we'll talk a little bit about what could someone nefarious do with either these big caches of data right. or by training a machine learning in a more nefarious manner. And I think there's one uh, example we can hit on um, about nefarious training of a, a machine learning or an AI or a chat bot or what we want to call is a, if you just Google uh, Twitter and the word Tay, T-A-Y, if you didn't read any articles or see anything right. about it. Um, this is one where um, Microsoft put out a, a machine learning uh, onto Twitter directly and let it learn about society through the Twitter platform. And that learning was not very effective um, if you wanted to build a normal, well-functioning member of society. Right, right. There are all, all, manners of, uh, all manner of different examples like that out there. I, I think this is just a fascinating uh, subject. I'm really glad that uh, you invited me in here to talk about this. 
really glad to, uh, I guess in the next section, talk a little bit more granularly about what this means for data, uh, where all this data is coming from, why, why there's so much more data out there that's being collected, and uh, you know, what, some of the, what, what things should be taken into consideration here moving forward. And what could a bad person do with all of it. Exactly. And then how do we keep ourselves safe. Exactly. Sounds great. Well, thanks, Charlie, and we'll be back here in just a moment. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio here with Charlie Rentschler. In the last segment, we covered an intro to machine learning, a little bit about what it is and what you may have seen. And now we're going to talk about what people are doing with machine learning on the bad side, potentially. So there's all this data being collected. And Charlie had kind of hinted at this as we, we went into the break, uh, that folks out there are gathering more and more information, whether it's your refrigerator, your cell phone, your everything, I guess, at this right. point. I mean, you know, these new home devices that are everywhere, what, that you, you bark at from across the room uh, asking it to deliver you uh, milk and cookies and ice cream and whatever else. It's cameras in public places or in private places. Uh, more and more uh, companies are leveraging, we, we talked about the, the facial expression example uh, in the last segment. You might ask yourself the question, well, how does a company actually benefit from uh, recognizing the emotions on somebody's face? Well, uh, if you're an airline, maybe you'd want to know what percentage of the people that are getting off your plane are happy versus really upset. Uh, maybe because you want to be able to incentivize your in-flight crews that way. Maybe if you're a retailer, you want the same thing. Are people walking out of the stores in Shreveport any happier than they are in Dallas, Texas, and why is that? These kinds of things. But to your point, Brett, now people are gathering up data from all these different places, from your cell phone, from these cameras, from your computer, laptop, from all of these other places, and they're doing stuff with it. And it, I think to your point, it, it, it absolutely leaves the door open for nefariousness. So when a, a hacker used to hack into one of these companies, they used to get my credit card number, and I can take out a pair of scissors, and I can cut my credit card up, and I can work with my bank or my credit card company to get a new credit card. Right. If we, we go through some of this behavioral data, if this data gets into the hands of bad actors, what do I, what, what can I do as an individual to, like, is there an equivalent of cutting up my credit card and starting over? Or how, how do we think through this from a, a data perspective? Well, I, I think that it's, it's a very challenging one because there's more and more data, and by extension, that would suggest that there are more and more opportunities for people to sink their teeth into that data and to start to do bad things with it. So whether you're talking about a company or if you're just an individual person or a consumer, the, the, the fact is, is that you have to be absolutely vigilant because uh, these people are preying upon folks that uh, assume that everything is going to be fine and dandy and not to even worry about things and I'm not going to take the extra steps or precautions that I know that I know that I need to take. I, I think that that's always been the case, but now that there's more and more information being collected on all of us every day, I just think it means that, that we, we need to all double down and make sure that everything is as tight as it can possibly be. Uh, with the understanding that 
there there is no perfect situation probably yeah and this is it's interesting this goes um along the lines with the the information and the data gathering uh the information that is valuable right now such as a credit card number but can be destroyed and can go to zero value and then there's other information um, like my mother's maiden name it's always going to be my mother's maiden name i can't go back and and go get her a new maiden name um, so there's this information that's something I know that's going to be valuable from now until the end of time as long as that's used inside of a system. Uh, so this is one, I think, where as you have these machine learning platforms collecting all of this data, and you can have a bad actor out here now using a chatbot to try right. to do a lot of this reconnaissance right. that before they had to try to do through social engineering. So if, if I'm an attacker, if I can go out and start making a, a quote, real fake account on Facebook, I think we've all seen the fake, fake accounts on Facebook right. where they pop up and it's um, someone that has no friends and a name that you've never heard of and they apparently live next door to you now and they're trying to be your friend on Facebook, right. you deny that one. But I think with these machine learning systems now, there's going to be fake accounts on a place like Facebook that actually look very real, right. that interact with other people that have conversations. And if they become your friend, there's all these information that I share publicly on Facebook. And then there's information that's only available to my friends, uh, such as my birth date right. or other things. Uh, so as a, an attacker out there, they, I think, see opportunity. And I think they're going to have the opportunity to dig into using some of these tools and kits very quickly here. Right. How do I, I mean, I can just not friend people I haven't met in real right. life on Facebook, but um, how do I as a consumer, is there anything that you've got tips or recommendations of, of what should I do to avoid getting social engineered by a, a social robot? I, I, think it's a, I think it's a great question and one that doesn't get asked nearly often enough. I, I think that... The, the fact is is that these types of conversations probably very rarely happen among friends or colleagues or even people in, in our business of technology. Uh, and the fact is, you're absolutely right. People are not just using machine learning uh, to advance their organizational goals uh, or whatever it is that their company is working on to improve the, their balance sheet. There are bad people in this world. That's just face facts. And, and these people want to leverage the same really exciting platform that is machine learning, only this time it's to do really bad things. So these are increasingly sophisticated um, uh, approaches. I, I, you know, I, I guess I hearken back in my mind to the movie The Blade Runner, where you have to give the, uh, you know, the, the people the, the void comp test to make sure that they really are a human being as opposed to uh, some sort of a cyborg. I think that in, in our world today, sometimes it can be really hard to tell who is a bad actor and who isn't. Uh, and I think that all, all of this gets back to the same uh, immutable truth, and that is that you have to be vigilant about your data where it's going, where it's stored, the people that are storing this data, is, are, are, these, are these people that actually have uh, you know, really great, incredible levels of, of encryption on top of what it is that they do? And not just assuming that uh, because uh, you're working with a company that's got a great big, huge data center, that you know, you've got something up in the cloud, that that, that, that cuts it, and that, that you can just sort of say, okay, that box is checked, let me just move forward. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen hacks of businesses from small to large. Uh, we're seeing more of the, the small business hacking uh, the last 18 months with the right. rise of Bitcoin. 
making it more efficient to attack some of these small businesses for for ransoms. But um, that's a whole. Well, separate I, well, topic I was I was I was going to spin this around and ask you whether you see these threats uh, becoming increasingly sophisticated, much the same way that I'm talking about. You know, businesses using this for good in increasingly sophisticated ways. Are, are you what what are you seeing on your end? So from the attacker perspective, if we rewind back in the internet, and there's originally the internet was designed to be wide open, firewalls didn't exist. Um, and then bad actors wrote uh, port scanners. So they could sweep across a range of IP addresses. They could find if the machines were listening on those ports, and then it could try to connect to those and, and hack those services. And then we built firewalls to put into place to protect the services on our computer and only make public the services that needed to be public right. for folks. And then those services that needed to be public are our web server and the websites and um, other business partner portal applications. Um, the attacker started to dig deeper into those and, and web hacking started right. and cross-site scripting and all these other web-level vulnerabilities. So then we built application firewalls right. that helped protect the application in a much more sophisticated way than the packet filter. I think the machine learning tools are going to create the opportunity for hackers to now do uh, social scanning. Okay. So before, social engineering was people. It was brute force. I mean, an example of a social engineering scam going on right now is uh, there's a call center calling folks saying that uh, they're with Microsoft and they have a security update that they need you to go on your computer right now that they've seen that your computer is compromised. And um, they called me. They've called uh, some of our customers. Um, they called me. I spent 45 minutes just on the phone just to see what I could learn from talking to these folks. And I got escalated to their level two and all these things. Right. They have a whole center full of people that are trying to social engineer folks into letting them install malware onto to their computer. Right. And that's a whole call center full of people doing bad things, this is going to be something that potentially as the uh, text-to-speech gets better, right. as the conversational piece gets better, that a hacker is now going to be able to spin up some computers in a cloud somewhere, put this software on there, and have it go have a conversation um, to try to get people to install this malware on their computer or give up their social security number. There's a Another scam that's been going around pretty frequently right now saying that, uh, hi, I'm, I'm with your, your cell phone company and I need you to provide your last four digits uh, to validate uh, these international calls that are being made from your line. Right. Um, and people give up the last four digits of their social security number right. and that information gets gathered. But that's time consuming and manual right now. And they're going through all of this to get to identity theft because right. an identity has a high value. Right. Um, a credit card number's got a value. Your medical record has a value. But if the full identity has a very big value, and they can sell these identities in black markets. So all of that identity building takes a bunch of time right now. And the machines may make that much easier. The flip side or phase two of this that is really scary, now if somebody does identity theft and they steal your identity, they can use your social security number and your address and all these things to get through and um, maybe open a bank account in your name or get a car loan in your name. But they don't really know how to impersonate you. Right. Now imagine that I've got a machine learning system and I've hacked into your email and I can read your email and I'm on your computer and right. I can read all of your documents. I can see 
when you open your web browser and how you browse the web, and I can monitor you for 30, 60, 90 days. We'll see how long it right. takes the machine to get trained. Now, not only can I potentially steal your identity to go get a car loan, I can actually have a machine pretend to be you on the internet. It could go onto forums, it could have conversations with your friends on right. Facebook. And now, not only are they hacking with a fake Facebook account, they're actually pretending to be Charlie, going, hey, Brad, I'd like you to come over for a barbecue on Saturday. Can you give me your credit card number real quick so I can order some extra brisket for us? Right. And I'm like, man, this is coming from Charlie. This sounds like something Charlie might actually ask me to do. Right. And now you're going to have this, is it real? Is this really Charlie I'm having a conversation with? Or is this someone who's hacked Charlie, right. stolen Charlie's persona, and they're impersonating him now? It, it, it's absolutely the dark side of, of what it is that's being worked on right now. I, I think you just put it really, really well. I mean, if, if, a, if a retailer wants to get inside your head to figure out, to try to anticipate what you want at any given moment and then to try to fulfill it uh, and, and, and to really get to know you and to get so close to you that they feel like they can anticipate that, uh, it, it stands to reason that somebody with nefarious uh, intentions could, could flip that around and really do a tremendous amount of harm. Uh, but, but again, I, I, would, I would ask you, I mean, from your perspective, what are... What are really sophisticated people doing these days that, that recognize these threats as being true? I mean, what, what are your kind of one or two or three quick hits that people should consider doing? I mean, you hear things uh, online, you know, things like LifeLock and, and other types of services like that. Uh, I mean, is that the appropriate approach for most people to take that are actually conscious of this and, and, are, and are very concerned appropriately? So doing some basic monitoring of your own behavior um, and what's happening in your accounts and your systems is good, whether it's a, a product like LifeLock or many banks have some of these things built into the services now because they're getting very concerned about it, um, especially or like at the business level, you can put controls in second factor authentication in a right. way of like, if I authorize a transaction and it's over a certain amount, I don't just have a second digital piece, but there's actually a phone call involved and they require to have a conversation to a number that's an out-of-channel phone number. Uh, so there's different controls you can start to put in place to help secure some of these things. But uh, this is, is one as well, uh, I mean, just basic hygiene piece of not using the same password everywhere, uh, using a unique email address per service you sign up with. So the um, little tip and trick uh, with Gmail, if you're a Gmail user for your personal email, right. you could do uh, my personal Gmail is brettpyatt at gmail.com. But if I signed up for a service, I could do brettpyatt, the plus sign, and purplecows at gmail.com. And that's everything after the plus sign, you could put something there to for, make it unique for you. Hmm. Now, if all of a sudden um, I see that I'm getting spam to brettpyatt plus right. purplecows at gmail.com, and I know I only use that at the purple cow place. Right. Now I know that they've either been hacked or they've given out my IP address or they've sold my IP address in a list or, or my email address there in a list or some other activity because I've never used that specific version of my address elsewhere. So you can, you can put these little canaries in place to help alert yourself right. that something bad could be going on. That's a great trail of breadcrumbs to try to figure out uh, where, where the leak or the vulnerability came from for sure. That's interesting. I never heard of that. Yeah. And there's 
so there's a number of those type of, of things you can do to be aware and safe and vigilant. And this is just as like you're walking down a physical street at night. You should be looking around. You should try to walk on the side of the street that's got street lights. You should uh, try not to walk next to parked cars that um, you can't see in the windows and right. those type of things. I think there's folks have a general physical awareness of things they should do, but the, the digital awareness is uh, not where it needs to be today. And with the, the rise of the machine learning, depending on the pace this goes at, I think there's going to be a large need for a more broad scale education for people to have some digital awareness. Because if I can actually have a conversation with you and I can see you in person and I know that if you go, hey, right, I've given me your credit card number for brisket this weekend, that's pretty hard to fake. Right. But as you get into many of these other online pieces, it's easier to teach a machine learning system to chat via a messenger service where all it has to do is understand your language patterns in a text messaging stream. All it has to do is be able to impersonate your timing and your type and your wit right. and those things via text. It doesn't have to look like Charlie. It doesn't have to sound like Charlie. It just has to text like Charlie. Right. Wow. You know, I was just going back and forth earlier today with this very nice sounding prince from Nigeria who's trying like heck to get me some money. Uh, all I have to do is, uh, I'm kidding. Yes, yeah, yeah. give him your bank account. Number. Right, you know, it's yes. just as easy as that, and then he's going to make it well worth my while. No, I mean, and that's that's happening. And so, from the attacker perspective, um, there's those broad campaigns which are are kind of fire out there, and they don't sound very believable because they're not because they're written by a person. They just copied and pasted and sent this to a million email addresses. Right. Now, look at the refined version of that, though. You joke about the Nigerian print. But now, if this is your wife sending you an email um, and the machines have figured out that you're in the middle of trying to buy a house and now your wife's sending you a mail saying, I need you to do a wire transfer right. to the title company and here's the, the address, you're like, should I be sending that right now or not? Do I trust just the email? And she says, I'm in a meeting. I can't actually talk to you on the phone. Right. So just send it. They need it in an hour. You might send that. Exactly right. And with the, the data out there, the hackers are going to be trying to gather all of this information so that they can make what they're calling these uh, spear phishing. Uh, it's a very targeted, time-specific, and context-aware attack. Those are hard to execute right now because it requires a person right. really doing all that analysis. But the machine learning has the potential to help speed up that analysis for these folks. And they'll, they'll get into an attack pattern that's successful where... They realize that they can fake um, an email to a spouse or an email from a CEO to a CFO or a, a treasury or controller. Right. Um, and then once they've identified that pattern, now they have the training system for the machine and they can go out and they can say, here's the hundred where I was successful. Go try to replicate this with other people across our trove of data that we've collected, the millions of email addresses of CFOs and CEOs and treasuries, controllers and husbands and spouses and wives. It's incredible that these nefarious people always seem to be one step ahead, at least at the onset of the proliferation of these types of technologies. And they, uh, and they get very, very sophisticated once they've found what they feel like is an approach that, that not only works, but it could be uh, repeated thousands and millions of times. And you know, all, all they need essentially at this point is compute resources and, and even larger databases of contact information, and then they can go get that many more people. So it's definitely a scary world that we live in. I think I think that some of the um, 
you know, some of those points of hygiene are, are really, really important. And even for folks like ourselves that you know work in this uh, technology business, we forget to do that. Uh, so, yeah. great points. Yeah. So uh, another scenario that uh, is getting talked about in some of the places where there's municipal security cameras uh, up across the whole entire city um, or country. If those municipal security cameras are getting hacked into, now as a, a bad actor, you potentially have with machine learning the capability to understand the whereabouts and the schedules and routines of every person that passes underneath that network of cameras. And if you're a real attacker as a human and you have to watch all this footage in real time, you might be able to follow one pe person or two people or three right. people or five people around. Um, one of the, the things we didn't talk about at the first um, onset uh, was we described machine learning overall. There's two different types of hardware people are using for machine learning. There's CPUs, which are like the main one in your computer that you use to run your word processing and do your general activities. And it's a processing unit that's good at general tasks. And then there's GPUs, which your computer, it started as a graphics processing unit, but it's not really used for graphics anymore. Now it's used for super high-speed facial recognition or image recognition or audio processing or all sorts of things that are heavy on what they call floating point calculations. So right. now if I put together a rig for twenty-five dollars or $50,000, I might be able to watch video of a crowd of people and using facial recognition, identify who all the people are in the crowd and track them around that crowd right. over time. And, and for a sophisticated attacker, $25,000, $50,000 rig, if I could all of a sudden now understand the routines and whereabouts of hundreds of people or thousands of people, I could see who locks their, their car door when they get out of their car, who doesn't lock their car door. Right. If I could feed that information back to my network of henchmen that are out there boots on the ground that uh, Charlie parks his car at uh, 110 East Houston Street here in San Antonio every day um, at 8 a.m. and he doesn't lock it and he doesn't go back down to his car until 11 a.m. then I know I have a three-hour window to get into his car and steal his car every right. morning and you can feed that down and now you're committing physical crimes using some of this digital data but you're committing it in a way that you know that this is an opportune target and you have a time to go exploit it. Right, I, I think that's exactly right. I'm glad that you brought up the difference in uh, the, the, the technology stacks that these things are getting deployed on because uh, you, you're, you, you hit the nail right on the head. When people d leverage things like graphical processing units as opposed to CPUs, it just makes the entire stack that much more powerful, that much more scalable, it can do that many more things. And you're either a company or an organization or an individual that are using that for good or for bad. And I, and I think that we need to assume that both are going to go on and, and plan accordingly. So, I mean, I, I think really uh, summing this up, this is an incredibly exciting and powerful concept, um, but one that everybody needs to be fully aware of and to take steps and measures to ensure that you're not going to be on the wrong side of uh, the output of some nefarious machine learning uh, uh, algorithm. Um, that said, there's some fascinating things going on here locally. Uh, you know, some of the folks at UTSA uh, are, are doing some really, really cool things. So, so when we talk about machine learning and all these uh, good things and bad things, uh, hopefully none of the bad things, but there are a lot of really positive things that are going on here locally in San Antonio that I think are uh, worth mentioning. Our old friend Paul Rad is doing some really cool stuff out there at UTSA. 
uh, with a bunch of uh, super smart math majors and other folks that have taken a, a very specific interest in this. So uh, you don't have to go that far afield to see uh, local examples of, uh, of this stuff doing really well. No, there's uh, lots of good cancer research going on using machine learning as well because right. machine learning is really valuable in the case where you can't do a brute force exhaustive search. And this right. is uh, one where, yeah, going through the bio data is another one uh, where exactly. it's making huge positive leaps forward for us. Um, and, I, and, and I certainly don't want to leave everybody with that impression. I mean, you, you bring up cancer research. I mean, for every leukemia uh, patient that MD Anderson has, uh, machine learning algorithms are, 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 are carving through all of their uh, genetic information, their entire uh, medical history and background. They're looking again for those patterns and those anomalies in that to help advance the cause of cancer research. So, I mean, it's, it's really hard to paint machine learning with such a broad brush and say this is either a really good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it, it, it's here. I think it's enormously valuable. I think it's going to be used for way more good than, than bad, but at the same time covering for that other side of the coin, which is, hey, you know, there are bad people and they're going to use this for bad stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us on CyberTalk Radio, Charlie. This was uh, our first episode. We will be with you uh, every Saturday night uh, going forward from uh, here on out on WAI. And um, not you specifically, Charlie, but you, the listener. We will be with you because you'll be back next week when we have some more amazing guests and things to talk about. Thanks, Brett. Thank you.